Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honoured his name. They will be mine, says the Lord Almighty, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. Over um, many years now, whilst we've been uh, in the armed forces, we've had, as a family, uh, a prayer group who've prayed for us every month for many, many years. They meet together and they pray for us as a family and one or two other families. And uh, once a month, the telephone rings at home and um, I'm normally really busy and doing something and I rush and I answer the phone and it's this godly uh, now fairly elderly lady um, on the uh, end of the phone asking me for my prayer requests. And, uh, and I'll be honest with you, sometimes my mind just goes completely blank. Um, what, what should I tell her? What should I ask for prayer requests? Should I, should I tell her I'm worried about all the bills that have come in at the end of the month? And where am I going to find the money to pay them all? Should I uh, tell her that, uh, to pray about the kids' exams at school? Or, or should I tell her um, to pray about where we should go on holiday in the coming year? Sometimes I get completely uh, stuck. But, you know, over the years, it's sometimes made me, forced me to think about what really matters in our lives. And I'll be honest, I haven't always had the courage to ask them to pray for the right things. Though I suspect that they've probably done that anyway uh, over the years, wonderful though it is. Now, what if the Apostle Paul himself sent a message to you or to this church asking for your prayer requests? How would you respond? Perhaps... Some of you would immediately think of your health needs. You would say, well, can you please, please pray for uh, the operation I'm about to have or, or the difficulties that I'm struggling with? Perhaps it would be finances. We all have financial problems from time to time. Maybe it would be your relationships. Maybe it would be your work. And for the church, you might say, well, we'd like you to pray for growth for our leadership, for young people, whatever it might be. Well, this morning, friends, we're going to see what the Apostle Paul actually prays for this Ephesian church. And I think it might surprise you and fill you with wonder. And maybe it might even begin to change your prayer life as well. Let's pray together as we come to this amazing chapter of God's Word. Our gracious God, we come into your presence to hear your word. We pray, Lord, that you would speak to us, that you would give us understanding, that indeed you would open the eyes of our heart, that we may understand wonderful things from your truth. Lord, help us. Be with us. Fill us with your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, it's great, isn't it, that you're working through this uh, wonderful letter written to the Ephesians. 
I'm really quite envious of you. I think it's really exciting that you're working through it week by week. And I've been thrilled um, to read through this passage again and try and get something from it uh, to pass on to you. And you will already have had an introduction to this book um, and you will have looked at the first half of chapter one addressed to the church at Ephesus. You probably heard that it's addressed to the Ephesian church, but it was probably designed as a sort of circular letter to be passed around all the churches in Asia Minor and uh, to be read in all those churches. And it was, of course, a letter written to uh, a place, Ephesus, that was uh, prosperous, a great trading place. It was prominent, um, well-known city, and it was preoccupied with magic and with superstition. You'll remember uh, from the book of Acts that some of the new Christians there brought together their old books of magic uh, and they burnt them all in the public place to the astonishment of the onlookers, uh, knowing just how valuable, how expensive these magic books were. And uh, of course, it's been a very favourite letter. If we're allowed to have favourites, in God's word, then the book of Ephesians has been a favourite to a number of prominent preachers and theologians over the years. One Scottish preacher described it as the distilled essence of the Christian faith, which is lovely, isn't it? You know, it's as though the steam is all boiled away and the, the, the essence, the distilled essence of the Christian message is here in the letter to the Ephesians. One person wrote about Ephesians that it is truth that sings and another that it is doctrine set to music. Wonderful, isn't it? And John Stott, I looked it up this week, um, he subtitles his popular commentary on Ephesians as God's new society. And that's a great clue to what it's all about, isn't it? Because this letter really highlights what it means to make a new start to live in a new society, to have new standards and new relationships, discovering the one who makes all things new. I spent one evening this past week with uh, a man, a fairly young man, uh, who desperately wants to make a new start in his life. He knows that he's made a mess of his life so far. Uh, that destructive habits have taken hold of his life. And he wants a second chance, a new start. And I'm not sure yet whether he'll be able to manage that on his own. But this letter describes what it means to make a fresh start, to have a new life in Jesus Christ. To have new life and be part of a new community of God's people. And let's not get this wrong. This is the Christian message that is revolutionary. It's countercultural. It's life transforming. It's identity changing. If you go away from here with any other thought, then you've missed the point. You know, our individualistic Western society is obsessed, isn't it, by the search for personal identity, discovering who we are. Young people struggling with their identity, trying desperately to find some purpose and meaning in their lives. So we have young and old encouraged to find their identity in gender, in sexual attraction, 
in the arts, politics, family, jobs and hobbies that express who they really are. But this letter is addressed to those, and I know it's some of you, who have found their identity in Jesus Christ. And that's why you will have seen last week, as you looked through the first 14 verses of chapter 1, you'll have found those wonderful reminders of who we are in Jesus Christ. If you've believed and trusted in Jesus, I noticed when I opened my Bible here that I'd scribbled down in my margin the acronym CARS, C-A-R-S. And it's a lovely way of summing up those first 14 verses. C means chosen. We're chosen in Christ. A means adopted. We are adopted as Christians into God's family. R means that we're redeemed. We've been bought back with a great price. And S means that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of God. That's extraordinary. I almost don't want to go any further. Maybe we'll do last week's sermon all over again. Isn't that wonderful? You know, you can be here this morning and you think, I'm a really quite a pathetic individual. I'm, if I'm a Christian at all, then I'm a poor Christian at best. And yet Paul reminds us that we are chosen in him, that we've been adopted into his family, that we've been redeemed. We've been so precious that we've been bought back with great price by God himself. And we are sealed with God's Holy Spirit. Are you sealed with God's Holy Spirit? What an extraordinary position you are in if you're a Christian this morning. And now, in this second part, I said to you that you would be surprised at what Paul prays. Because Paul, having remind them, reminded these people of all these blessings, of who they are, he now prays them in. He prays that you won't just know that in your heads, but that you will know it for real in your lives. You know what's... Have you ever experienced this? It's really, really annoying when you're having a, a really bad day and you're just having a really good moan to somebody about your ailments, how rotten you feel, how everything seems to be going wrong, all the bills have arrived at once, the washing machine's broken down, the dog's been sick on the carpet, the job's getting you down, how difficult life is, how unfortunate you are. And they look at you and they go, John, why don't you just learn to count your blessings Name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. And you look at them, and you know it's true, but it's just so irritating. You just wanted some tea and sympathy. You know, these Ephesian believers would have had many needs. They, too, would have felt like a small and despised group in Ephesus. Some of them were struggling to throw off old habits and ways of life. Some were probably suffering from ill health or financial problems. Some would have had family problems or pressures of work. Some of them probably would have been slaves. So Paul reminds them who they are in Christ and the blessings that they have. And then he prays that they would know it for real in their lives. So my friends, this morning, very briefly, four things that Paul prays that you will know. And here they are. 
Paul prays that you will know him, that is Jesus, better. Isn't that wonderful? He prays that we would know our calling, the hope to which we are called. He prays that we will know what Jesus, what God has in store for us. And he prays, finally, that we will know his power. And all of that in the context that it will all be brought under the headship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, very briefly then, uh, these four things. Let's have a look at them this morning. Let's dig a little bit deeper. Verse 17, the Apostle Paul clearly loves these new believers in Ephesus and he commends them warmly. For word has reached him in prison that they are known for their faith and love for one another. Wouldn't it be great if we were known here in Ladyfield, our reputation was that this church was a church of strong faith and genuine love. Maybe you could put it under your notice board. Ladyfield Evangelical Church, strong faith and fervent love. Wouldn't that be wonderful? So often, you know, it's not what we hear about churches, is it? Instead, we hear of unfaithfulness, hypocrisy, quarrelling when it should be otherwise. But Paul gives thanks for these people because he knows that these are key ingredients. You see, if you want to be saved, if you want to enter into all of these blessings, then the first thing is you have to have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder if that's you this morning. Do you have faith? in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done? Have you put your trust in Jesus? That's what changes people's lives. Faith is a decisive act. It's a sustained attitude. It's not just a one-off emotional response. And love for all the saints. You say, well, love for all the saints, which ones do you mean? Saint Augustus? Saint Teresa? Are these the people I'm supposed to love? No, my friends, look along the rows. Look along the rows of these church, of this church. These are the saints that Paul asks you to love. Mixed up from all sorts of backgrounds, all sorts of emotional, educational um, backgrounds. A motley collection of sinners saved by grace. Old, young, rich, poor, male, female, with weaknesses and failings, with joys and sorrows. Yes, you are the saints that we are to love. So the apostle then says, this is what I keep asking for you. And do you notice what he keeps asking for? It's not good health or prosperity or top exam results or influence or even numerical church growth. But look at this a spirit of wisdom and revelation that you may know him better. That's what he prays. Maybe that's what I should have responded when this lady rang up uh, each month. I should have been saying, I want you to pray that we would know Jesus better. Because if we know Jesus better, that changes and transforms everything. And many commentators here 
point to the Trinitarian reference in these verses. You may have noticed that. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, the Spirit of Wisdom. A reference surely to the three in one that is our God. Some of your Bibles have a capital S for Spirit. Some of them have a small s. But regardless of that, we understand that to know God better is to see him in Jesus by the power and the enlightening of the Holy Spirit. And this whole prayer, you see, is underpinned by the idea of having our eyes opened, the eyes of our hearts opened, so that we can be enlightened. Now, it's a metaphor, of course. Our hearts don't have eyes, do they? But we understand what the the Apostle Paul is driving at. We have metaphors like that ourselves, don't we? We talk about... Um, Oh, the penny has dropped. Penny hasn't literally dropped, but we know what that means. It means that somehow there's suddenly been an understanding. Sometimes we say, oh, oh, the mist has cleared. Metaphorically, we suddenly it's as though the mist has cleared and we see. I don't know whether you've ever seen those um, sort of colourful patterns. Uh, I, I won't. I'll pass it around afterwards. Have you ever seen these sorts of uh, little colourful patterns? And you're supposed to sit and look at them until you can see what is behind it. There is a 3D um, image in this pattern. You may not be able to see it here. But I don't know whether you've ever looked at these things. And Sometimes you can look and look and look and you just can't see the image. And then suddenly it begins to sort of dissolve before your eyes and you see the image coming out from the paper. And you know, that's perhaps a picture in a way of what it's like when Paul prays that we should have the eyes of our hearts opened, that we may know him better, that we may be enlightened and that we may understand. You know, even with these things, some people lose patience. They stare for ages and nothing seems to happen. And so it is spiritually. Paul prays for spiritual enlightenment, wisdom and revelation to know him better. See, it's possible, isn't it, to know about Jesus, to even admire him and his teachings, but not to know him personally, not to love him or to put our faith and trust in him. And of course our knowledge of someone grows as we listen and talk, as we invest time and trust, as we follow and we learn from them. And Paul wants his readers to know him better, to love him more, to see that he is their saviour, their king, their friend that sticks closer than a brother. One of the saddest things I've heard recently was someone close to me say, but I just don't love Jesus. And you know, this prayer seems so pertinent even to that, doesn't it? I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. One of the things that characterises the letter to the Ephesians, and you'll see it as you go through in the coming weeks, is that there's a backdrop of what were known as the mystery religions. They were very prevalent in uh, Ephesus at that time. People loved creating, you see, this mystique around religious practices. 
often with occultic influences, in which worshippers are initiated into various levels of knowledge and understanding until final mysteries are revealed. And you'll know that such practices are still common today in secret societies. And throughout this epistle, the Apostle Paul has a dig at such false teaching, proclaiming instead that the mystery, the mystery has been revealed in Jesus Christ, that we can know the truth, that we can have wisdom and revelation and understanding. No more secret societies, no more initiation rites, mysterious levels of knowledge, incantations and higher knowledge because the mystery has been made known in Jesus Christ. Get to know him, won't you? Secondly, much more briefly, we should know our calling. So Paul prays for enlightenment, for our eyes to be opened. And do you see what this is here in verse 18? To know the hope to which we have been called. I went to a funeral, may have told you this before, I went to a funeral last year of an old army colleague of mine. He did very well for himself, left the army after a few years, went into banking, worked for Barclays Wealth, uh, did very well, made a lot of money, uh, retired early and bought himself a little farm in Shropshire and uh, seemed to be living the dream, but then he committed suicide in his 50s, leaving his wife and family behind to grieve. And Jeannie and I went to the funeral, the celebration of his life. And you know what characterised that funeral? I'll tell you. No hope, no meaning, no purpose, no hope for the future, no understanding of what comes next, no confidence, just utter hopelessness and futility. But Paul prays that these believers might know the hope to which they have been called. And it's not a vague hope. It's not that sort of hope that something good might happen, like, I hope it snows at Christmas. No, this is a sure, a confident, and a certain hope or expectation that God will fulfil his promises. That's the sort of hope Christian hope is. Having such a hope is a calling We are to live it and breathe it and speak about it and hope in it and act on it. It's a hope and confidence that our sins are forgiven. It's a hope that we've been reconciled again with the Father. It's knowing that we're called, adopted, redeemed and sealed by the Spirit. I went to another funeral just before Christmas. Uh, My cousin's husband, Brian, he died too, unexpectedly, in his 50s. But the difference with Brian was that in his 20s, as a bit of a rocker, he'd come to a Christian meeting and come and found faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And at his funeral, we sang songs of praise and hope knowing that Brian was with Christ, which is far better. We sang, actually, that song we started with this morning. There is a higher throne to which the believers will be called 
to stand. That's the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Thirdly, know what he has in store for us. Did you notice what it was in verse 18? Look down at it. The riches of his glorious inheritance. You know, the story is told, uh, I don't know if it's true, but the story is told of a a lady, a fairly elderly lady. Uh, I think that she'd had a pretty hard time. And her family clubbed together and they decided to send her on a cruise to cheer her up, uh, to get her out of where she was, um, to make things a bit better for her. And off she went on this cruise, I think it was up the Norwegian fjords, beautiful scenery. And after a couple of days, uh, someone, one of her fellow passengers, found her there, uh, sitting with a a rug on the deck, uh, eating some uh, cracker biscuits and some cheese that she had in her bag. And they got talking and he said, why are you eating these Jacob's cracker biscuits and cheese when there is a banquet laid out down below in the restaurant? Oh, she said, I couldn't afford that. That's ridiculous. She said, I don't have that sort of money. All these rich people on this cruise, they seem to eat all the time. Breakfast, they're stuffing themselves. Lunchtime, more food. Evenings, supper. I can't afford that sort of thing. He said, lady, he said, do you not realise it's free? It's all-inclusive. Your family have paid for an all-inclusive trip. It's all there for you to take. Poor lady, she'd missed out for two days. (laughs) She'd missed out on the glorious food that was hers. You know, she should have entered in to what was on offer. And here in this Paul, in this letter, Paul emphasizes all the way through the book, and you'll see it as you go on, the riches of God's grace that are lavished on us, the riches of his mercy, chapter 2, the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Jesus Christ, chapter 2. Out of his glorious riches, he might strengthen you with power, chapter 3. And so on, as you read through. I have to say this. Commentators do divide a little bit over this verse as to whether this verse means our inheritance in Christ or God's inheritance of us in Christ. But you know, both are in a sense true. Why do I say that? Look back at verse 14. Verse 14 refers to our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. Do you get it? I began the sermon by reading Malachi 3 to you, which refers to God's people as his treasured possession. Do you know that if you're a Christian here this morning, you are God's treasured possession? Isn't that amazing? God's inheritance guaranteed by the presence of the Holy Spirit. What does God have in store for his people? Those who've put their trust in Jesus. Those who are his possession. He has, my friends, an inheritance that is mind-boggling in its scope and its wonder and its glory. 
It's the slumdog millionaire picture, isn't it? The picture of a beggar boy searching for scraps on the open rubbish heap outside a big city, being visited by a solicitor with a hanky stuffed to his nose to inform him that he has come into a vast inheritance. It's a picture of the poor, the despised, the destitute, raised to be seated amongst princes, clothed in finery, eating at the banqueting table. Those are the pictures, my friends. But it's not pie in the sky when you die. It's an inheritance that we begin to enter into now as we are spiritually washed, renewed, empowered, given meaning and purpose and experience the love of God shed abroad in our lives. That's what we have already. We're already entering in to the glorious inheritance that we have in Christ Jesus. Don't you want that? Are you entering into that? Finally, number four, we are asked to know God's power. Now this is remarkable, isn't it? And yet perhaps it's the most puzzling of all. Paul prays that these believers would know and presumably experience the incomparably great power, the mighty strength of God that raised Jesus from the dead. Have you grasped this? The same power that broke the curse, that overcame death and raised Jesus up to rule the universe can be known and experienced by you. Now, I mentioned this passage to someone in our congregation last week. I was excited about it. And she reminded me about someone we both know who suffers acute, agonising pain day and night. She's prayed for healing many times. She's been prayed for and anointed with oil, as we are encouraged to do in James 5. She's paid out large sums of money to surgeons without success but nothing seems to happen where then is the power where is God in those circumstances why are her prayers not answered where is this power that has been promised she's begun to doubt and to despair so is it possible for this prayer to be answered and for us to know and experience the power of God in our lives Or are we missing the point here? You see, I'm sure some of you feel weak and powerless and discouraged at times. So how can we understand this? I think a clue can be found just a few pages on in your Bibles in Philippians chapter 3. That great passage from verse 7 where Paul says that everything he once valued has become like muck compared with knowing Jesus and being found in him and having his righteousness through faith in him. I want to know Christ, he says, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. You see, this power is linked to resurrection power 
and saving power and the rule and headship of Jesus. It's not really about a power that we can just tap into to improve our lives, to solve our problems, or to give us health or wealth or prosperity in earthly terms. And that's not to belittle those sufferings. They're very real and the difficulties we may experience are very real. And the fact is that God does care about such things. But this power is resurrection power that brings spiritual life, that will ultimately raise you and me, if we're believers, from the dead. So that we don't have to fear death. This is resurrection power that will be applied to you, that has already changed and transformed you from the inside out. This is power that demonstrates that Jesus is Lord over all things. I don't want to sound too glib about this. Paul prays that we will know and experience this incomparably great power that is available for all who believe. You see, when we believe, this power breaks the curse. Wesley got it, didn't he, when he wrote, My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. And that's it, isn't it? A power that brings forgiveness, freedom, and faith in Jesus, who broke the curse of sin and death, and now rules over all. We should know that power, and it should make a difference in our lives. It should be changing us. Why can you have that confidence? It's the big takeaway from this morning. As Paul ends his prayer with the assurance that Jesus Christ is on the throne. He is in control and he is head over all things. Are you worried this year about politics and populism and post-truth, Brexit, Frexit and freeze it? Concerned for your job and your family, your health, maybe worried about death itself. Remember that Jesus has been raised from the dead and that he reigns over all. What did we sing? Above all powers, above all kings, above all nature and all created things, above all wisdom and all the ways of man. He's been there before the world began. Above all kingdoms, above all thrones, above all wonders the world has ever known, above all wealth and all the treasures of the earth. There's no way to measure what he's worth. And that's the person that Paul wants you to know better. That's the purpose for which you've been called. And that's the power that is available to those who believe. Are you one of those? Amen.